Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'd like to begin today by thanking some of our fellow saloners who have either purchased a copy of one of my books or who made a direct donation to the salon to help offset some of the expenses associated with uh, publishing these podcasts. In particular, I'd like to uh, thank Sajja, who is uh, currently joining us from Germany each week and whose very generous donation has almost covered the entire month's expenses. As I've said before, uh, most of our donations are in the $10 range, and believe me, I know how hard it can be to come up with 10 bucks sometimes. Uh, I've been there myself. So uh, even though your donation may not have been as large as Saja's, uh, please don't think that your donations aren't appreciated because, well, that's how we keep this show going, with uh, a whole bunch of people chipping in a few dollars once in a while. So uh, thank you one and all, and uh, I'm sure that all of our fellow saloners are thanking you as well. So, uh, as you may have noticed, I've been alternating the Palenque Norte lectures from last year's Burning Man Festival with a new Terence McKenna talk every other week. And so today I'm going to play another session from one of Terence's workshops for you. And this one picks up with the uh, same workshop that we've been listening to for a few weeks now. It was recorded on a Saturday morning and uh, part of the afternoon in December of 1994, and it continues in his usual format of responding to questions from the people in the audience. Now, I'm going to warn you ahead of time that there is one riff that you're going to hear in about 15 minutes from now that, well, maybe you're going to wonder why I didn't edit it out. What it is, is uh, Terrence telling his audience about this thing called the Internet. <laughs> now, keep in mind that uh, back in December of 1994, uh, most likely uh, there was probably nobody else in the room that was already on the net. And uh, what I hope you'll be able to uh, tune into is the excitement in Terrence's voice as he's telling his audience about the potential of the Internet. Now, way back then, I was uh, one of the thousands of other geeks who were beginning to build out the net. And it was an incredibly exciting time for us. Uh, in fact, I can still remember one night when one of the guys who worked for me called me at home in a state of great excitement because he had just seen a commercial on television that included a dot-com address in it. <laughs> and uh, that was many months after the same young man came in one morning and told me that he had now visited each of the 38 websites that were already available. But uh, he said he figured that he probably couldn't keep it up if there were as many as 50 one day. <laughs> Those were exciting days. Uh, and even several years before then, uh, several years before the web came along, in fact, I remember one night logging into the card catalog in the library at Trinity University in Dublin. It was uh, about 2 o'clock in the morning, but I was so excited to be accessing that far-distant computer that I got my then-girlfriend out of bed to watch me search the catalog over my 300 baud modem that uh, more or less painted one character on the screen at a time, just uh, sort of like a fast typist. Unfortunately for our relationship, uh, well, <laughs> she didn't share my amazement, but uh, I was really amazed. So uh, now when we listen to Terrence in just a few minutes when he goes into uh, really high gear about the revolution that's about to take place, 
Well, when we get there, I hope that you'll realize the full extent of this revolution, including the part that you are playing in it yourself, right at this very moment. Well, enough of me. I want to hear Terence's internet prophecy once again myself. But uh, first we'll begin with the question that I've used for the title of this workshop. What is truth, Terence? Oh, that's an easier question. <laughs> what, are, what one is sure of, uh, very little, I would, th I would think. Well, I'm getting ready to say nothing. Uh, I guess that's what it is. Everything is provisional. I, I, as to, I mean, what I believe in is the, what I called, and I mentioned it last night, the felt presence of immediate experience the primary datum. I'm very aware that everything else is a construct moving out from that. And so the primary datum is the first level of being. But to say I believe in it. You know, in Western philosophy, Descartes, and that would in be in like 1625, said cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And that seemed to make sense for 200 years. It was an effort to get back to the most basic statement you could make. I, the given, think, the, felt, the datum of immediate experience. But then, the therefore is an enormous abyss of assumption that may have made sense to Descartes, but it does not make sense to modern people. I think what we can say is, I think. If you're not thinking, then you are no more than the onrush of your metabolism and not greatly different from your cat or your dog. Well, thinking, we're not making here a distinction between thinking and feeling. What I mean when I say thinking or the felt presence of immediate experience is more like what most people call feeling. It's the awareness of being, you know, in its most simple sense. Uh, now, then there is this curious congruency which is not well understood by anybody, I mean, between mathematics and nature. So we have now a couple more things to play with. We have the felt presence of immediate experience, the I which feels, and then we have as mental objects in the given datum of experience both mathematical structures and the given natural world. And there is some deep and profound congruence between these two, and the relationship is not understood by anybody. I mean, to me, this is really the question. Why does mathematics describe nature? That's a deeper question than most. Um, and so I live by questions. I don't see how you can live any other way. I mean, you have to remember we're, we're animals, we're meat, we're specks of replicating organic chemistry on the surface of a planet. If we can make a model of our environment 
that seems to us a sufficiently clear mirror, that is probably about as far as you can go. The idea that we can actually uh, cognize the dynamic of being is, 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 well, it's a noble hope. I try to do it. I mean, I actually try to create a complete explanation. But I always call them models because you have to throw them away. You have to keep adding to the model and then uh, throwing it away. The real justification for psychedelics is that they feed new data into your model. You know, what we're doing is triangulating points in some kind of phase space. And if you go to Paris, you know more about reality than people who don't. And if you smoke DMT, you know more about reality than people who don't. And the, so the idea is to triangulate a sufficient sets, a sufficiently large number of data points in your set of experience that you can make a model of the world that is not imprisoning. Uh, that's why second to psychedelics, I think travel is the most boundary-dissolving um, educational enterprise that you can get mixed up in. Yeah. Yeah, but I think one problem is with, <coughs> with everything we experience in outside or with psychedelics is that um, we're, we're experiencing only more or less what we are believing with some um, variabilities. So, um, so maybe maybe we can see, yeah, it's, there's a possible other world. There is something more. And maybe that's all. Maybe I can exp I can understand the experience in my personal um, life, but I can't take it for real. It's it's in some kind of it's in some way real, but uh, I have to check out if I'm producing this. If I believe that, for example, the world is bad, then I will experience a bad other world, something like this. So I never can be sure of this because of my belief system. Well, in what you say, there's a strongly expressed dichotomy between self and world. I mean, this question of reality, non-reality, and so forth. But there is, you can perform a kind of philosophical reduction and satisfy yourself that uh, the self and world distinction is not primary. You know, that who looks through your eyes is the world. Yeah, I would probably buy into that. That it shows us that there is uh, that there is something else. Although I do think that the way ideas emerge into culture, which happens naturally without psychedelics, is probably accelerated by psychedelics. I think the experience over the past thousand years is that ideology is poisonous. You have two kinds of ideologies that we've experimented with over the past thousand years. Unsuccessful ones, where I would nominate, uh, uh, I suppose, Christianity, and successful ones, like science. And it turns out whether they're successful or unsuccessful, the consequences for the rest of us are pretty horrendous. The world seen through the lens of ideology is... Uh, a very limited world and the great catastrophes of the past thousand years have been brought on by uh, ideological 
errors. That's why, you know, I'm very suspicious of this thing I talked about last night that I called the world corporate state. But on the other hand, the world corporate state seems to be less ideological than any organizing entity that we've seen in a long time. It, it has no real ideology other than it wants to do business, which, which is hardly, you know, a cosmic vision. Uh, yeah. yeah. We've had a major, major shift uh, as far as this corporate state is concerned in the last 10, 20, 30 years, and that is the shareholder is wanting more than dividends now. The shareholder is also the consumer wants responsibility of the corporate state. So the management of these corporate states are having to adapt themselves to provide what their shareholders and their consumers want. Yeah, well, so what you're saying is it's being modified from the bottom up. Exactly. Yeah. But I think we should, that, that what electronic culture permits is incredible diversity. And that... Uh, what the print-created world n demanded and created was a tremendous suppression of diversity. Print created concepts like the citizen. That's a print-created notion. It created concepts like the public. There was no public before print. That idea didn't even exist. So we now define ourselves as, I'm a member of the public, I'm a citizen. Uh, these are very curious categories where you discover yourself a member of very large organizations that you never remember joining. <laughs> uh, you just sort of were born into it. Uh, what the electronic culture empowers is uh, diversity, eccentricity, and, uh, and uh, a pluralistic kind of mix. And that's very threatening to the print mind because the print mind is all about controlling through uh, having groups of people that you can deal with. That's why, in a sense, print uh, or, or television served a print agenda for the first 20 years of its existence because it was used in the network form, which is only one way to do TV. In that form, the real impact of television could be masked for a long time because by having millions of people watch the same TV programs, you, there is a tendency to overcome the deconstructural uh, impulse in TV and it begins to act like print. Now, of course, that's breaking down and, you know, the only people who watch network TV live in trailer courts. But uh, there was a time when, you see, that's what happened. What was everybody's media 25 years ago has become the media of the lower middle class. And then everybody else uh, the lower class has fallen into its own media, you know, underground radio stations, boom boxes and this. And then the, uh, the uh, upper echelons of society have gone to computer networks, email, uh, fiber optics, uh, and uh, view-on-demand TV. Television, I mean, is, to my mind, the most insidious drug that the 20th century has had to deal with. And, uh, you know, it is a drug. It's the first 
of the electronic drugs and its impact. Uh, if it were heroin, people would be alarmed. I mean, that people are on average watching six hours a day of TV. And I don't even think it's a content problem. I think television itself is toxic. It's not how many murders you witness. It's the actual physical... This is what McLuhan was always trying to say, that people couldn't understand what he meant when he said that the medium was the message. The message is not the message. The medium was the message. And the effects it had... I mean, we have millions of people who are warehoused in almost a larval state in their apartments watching TV, paying for their medical plans, and glued to this mindless opera of cultural decay that is recited day after day in front of them. I mean, it's horrible to imagine. And uh, th this, this is, you know, a creation to some degree of the world corporate state that probably has to be addressed. Yeah. There's a wonderful book that's just come out called Media Virus by Douglas Rushkoff uh, that addresses this, this problem really very well. Have you read that? I haven't read that. I know Doug. Uh, his other book, Siberia, is a nice look at cyber culture. Uh, yeah, yeah, interesting. What do you think is going to happen with this video, TV, no, I think well. No, I think that the that the most important cultural event happening right now is the rise, the explosive growth of the internet and the web. I mean, it, it, the idea that with my twelve hundred dollar power book, I can access three thousand computers around the planet by just plugging into a telephone jack is staggering. I mean, this is a revolution of orders of magnitude and that has happened completely invisibly. It, nobody's windows had to be rocked out, and no mm -hmm. camps had to be... Nothing appears to have changed. The people who are not switched on don't even know anything has happened. Mm -hmm. To them, the world looks exactly like it looked five years ago. To the people who are switched on, Earth is becoming a distant memory uh, of the Internet. Well, the Internet is the global brain, the cyber-spatially connected telepathic collective domain that we've all been hungering for. I mean, uh, it is so powerful. And it has arisen with incredible speed and by a very insidious fashion. I mean, first of all, as I mentioned last night, it was a, the Internet was originally called ARPANET. It was the Advanced Research Projects Agency. It was this super-secret military-industrial thing that they wanted to survive a thermonuclear attack. And so they designed it to be unkillable. It has no central switching zone. If you blow up a part of it, it just flows around the part you blow up. It is unkillable. So that was ARPA. And now it's become public domain. And uh, it's incredibly empowering for any minority. 
because you can find your peers. It doesn't matter what you're into. You know, you can play the Shanai and join the Shanai playing society. Uh, so no matter how eccentric your interest, you can find common ground out there. Then the other thing is information that I'm not kidding you, 10 years ago, the director of the CIA sitting at his desk in Langley, Virginia, didn't have these, the information processing capacity that you now have plugging into your power book at any phone jack in the world because these databases are there. And if you know how to surf the net, if you know how to program your no-bots so that while you're sleeping, they're sorting through and visiting various sites and downloading and looking and looking, you cannot believe what's out there. I mean, the entire planet has been turned into a local telephone call. And not only, you know, not to talk to people, but to talk... When, when you go on to the NCSA main page in Batavia, Illinois, it, it says available resources. You click on that and 1,500 computers come on, the names of them, and you just point and click, and now you're talking to that computer. And it tells you that the really interesting thing is being stored on another computer, not in Madrid, but in Singapore. And you point and click. Now you're talking to the main menu in Singapore. You go out onto the net. In the course of an hour of moving on the net, you may circle the planet ten times and talk to 50 computers all over the world. And you're downloading files and you're tracing your path so that you can go back. And this is, this is happening. It's been happening for quite some time. 30 million people are out there. And because it requires literacy and technology and, and money, those 30 million people probably are uh, among, probably only 10% of the people who rule the planet are not on that net. And it's where the cultural architecture is being put in place now. And it's this invisible space which is where we should have been building all the time. So I, I think this is the doorway into the new dimension into which we're going and that these technologies put in place for no reason other than to facilitate bank transfers and do incredibly mundane things are turning out to be uh, you know, the seeds of our electromagnetic body in hyperspace, yeah. Can you elaborate on your understanding of uh, virtual cities being designed uh, using computer networks? Well, it's simply that you want to create an interface with a bunch of data, and a very crude way to do it is to have a page with a list of computers and you click and you go to the computer. That's, that works, but it's not very sexy. Well, but what if we made a three-dimensional landscape and put buildings in that landscape so that the large red rectangle is the AT&T database, the low violet 
group of integrated triangles is the National Medical Database. In other words, you simply make the icons three-dimensional and analogous to buildings, and then you can build data town where, you know, the, these enor instead of a list of computers, they appear to be a long line of skyscrapers lining a broad avenue in which you're driving down in a Ferrari or something. All this will come. I mean, the engineers will do it. How it looks is immaterial. It's that it can be done anyway. Yeah. Well, from what you're saying, then, it feels like this is going to be a very intellectual, snobbish, it's going to be elitism. Because there's only going to be a certain, for a long time, a certain level of intellectual capacity, illiteracy, and literate, um, educational. So it's going to absolutely pull apart and make the, the class system even more... No, I think you're absolutely right that this is happening. This is part of the problem, that what is happening, you see, part of the illusion of the political history of the past 40 years was the illusion that we were all Presbyterians, we all ate white bread, and we all lived in the suburbs, and we all were white folks. And now the society is fragmenting. You're right. There are, you know, it, there are people who can't read by the millions in this society. Meanwhile, other people are reaching for informational technologies so powerful that they can barely be conceived of. And uh, this is the consequence of political mismanagement. The, I, don't, I, I mean, I think the American Union is flying to pieces because the notion of polity was betrayed in the 1960s. And that from since the middle of the 1960s, this has been a police state of some sort. You see, after World War II, and they kicked Hitler's ass and all that, then everybody came back full of idealism to raise families, to build America. They'd been through the New Deal. There was a modicum of social responsibility and consciousness hammered into the middle class. And everybody came back, and then uh, the American political system went haywire. And uh, basically because we lost our nerve, my generation, I'm 48, I went to the University of California at Berkeley in 1965, my generation was the beneficiary of the idea that you should give a universal education to everybody. And they discovered that if you do that, if you take everybody and make them read Plato and John Stuart Mill and Voltaire and Hobbes as we did, that you know you can't rule such people. They take it too seriously. They become ungovernable. They pour into the streets screaming about their rights. And so in the aftermath of the suppression of the counterculture of the 60s, it was decided that the, the goal of universal public education and the building of, in the, of a population intelligent enough to run a democracy, that would all be abandoned. And the universities would be turned into trade schools. And people would be given MBAs. 
and incorporated into the corporate state. But no more John Stuart Mill. No more of that. And uh, the consequences of this have been to create a, a, a historyless and illiterate uh, lower middle class, where before the lower middle class was the pool of our intellectual creativity. That's where John Steinbeck came from and Henry Miller and all of the people who drove the evolution of cultural values. So, and, you know, we could talk endlessly about what went wrong in the 60s or why we were turned into a police state. But now, the impulse of those kinds of repressive states is to forestall change. And change has been forestalled in America to the point where now, when it comes, it's going to be explosive, uncontrollable, revolutionary. You know, these, these, we will be lucky to get through this political cycle ahead of us without having to hang some of these people. Well, isn't this part of the whole point of what's going on right now? You mean that there is this tremendous... Now we're going to have the change... Yeah, the change which should have been spread out over 30 years is now going to come in the next five, no matter who it hurts, no matter how chaotic it is. Uh, well, I don't know how we got off on that. Uh, the role of psychedelics in all of this is that it erodes loyalty to the models of the tribe. And so we are the people who can see, and there may be others, I'm not claiming exclusivity for the psychedelic community, but the psychedelic community loudly proclaims that the emperor has no clothes. This is all a con game that this junk-dealing, hyper-media-obsessed, nitwit society is an unfit environment for delinquent 14-year-olds, let alone for the rest of us. And this is news they don't like to hear. Well, I think these things are always more interesting if they're driven by uh, the agendas of the people here. You got a fairly long hit of me this morning. If there are any areas that you want to bring into focus, uh, this is a good time to suggest it. Otherwise, I'll just launch into another meandering diatribe uh, and like that. Yes? I'm interested in more on ayahuasca. Uh, there's a book which I'm not sure it's been published yet, but you should all watch for it. It's, I hope will make a revolution in ayahuasca awareness. It's called The Three Halves of Emo Mosho. And it was translated by a good friend of many people in this room, Ken Symington, translated it. And it's by the Peruvian poet Cesar Calvo. And it is, it is a book about ayahuasca that could easily win the Nobel Prize for Literature. It's not some panting anthropological reportage. It's uh, art and incredibly rich. And if you get a chance, you should read it. If you're interested in this subject, another book about ayahuasca that is no easy read is a, a book with the unlikely title of Shamanism, Colonialism, <sighs> and the Wild Man by Michael Taussig. And it is an intellectual journey to places you never thought you'd pass through. Uh, Could you spell the title of the first one, the three halves of what? Imo Mosho, uh, I-M-O space 
M-O-X-O. The three halves of emo-mosho. Um, so, I don't know how much more there is to say about ayahuasca. From a phenomenological point of view, what's interesting is that it seems to hover on the edge of being a, a telepathic drug of some sort. And in fact, in, for the first 30 years of the 20th century, the active principle was actually called telepathine. Uh, and these German chemists and Theodor Koch-Grunberg and people like that were, were very interested in this. And then it was realized that it was actually harming a previously discovered substance. But uh, it isn't the kind of telepathy where you see what other people are thinking it's, it's, or, or hear what they're thinking. It's more that you actually see what is meant you have an experience of meaning related to seeing that is like wisdom. I mean, it's hard to explain, but whole societies are guided by people who are intoxicated by this material. Uh, yeah? Have any experiments been published that actually demonstrated those telepathic powers, or was it um, purely subjective? Well, no, I think it's slightly in a different realm. I don't think it will show up on like a card turning test or something like that. It is not telepathy. It's it's a different modality of mind is what it is. Uh, through song and sound, the boundaries are dissolved. But I don't know if, if you can set up a scientific scale that can detect this. Um, it seems more like taking on the mind of nature rather than That's right. It's that there is a shared state of mind, but it is not a sharing of states of mind. I think I understand. You see what I mean? Yeah. Have you done any comparative studying on other substances in different other cultures, for example, uh, the Haitians and the voodoo and the, the substances that they work with and... Um, I suppose other other people all over the globe. Well, see, it's a really it's a very complicated question because cultural values enter into the definition of what is an acceptable or desirable intoxication, and there's a whole smorgasbord of possibilities offered by nature, from things which are incredibly pleasant and. Oh, I don't know, aphrodisiac and so forth, through a range of things which nobody would ever do more than once. But then there's a kind of an intermediate range. I mean, if you can recall your first shot of scotch, you know, this is a shocking thing to your system. I mean, your body does not readily take to that. And... Uh, Voodoo is operating on these substances called tetrodotoxins that come from puffer fish that are much closer to being poisons than to being psychedelics, where people uh, are taken out in the bushes and given something and their stomach cramps and everything turns yellow and they fall down on the ground and they twitch and they vomit and they beg to die and they want to die. And then 10 hours later, they're fine. 
and they're brought down to the river and slapped around and washed off and given a piece of white cloth and told, now you're a full-fledged member of society. That's an ordeal poison. And it acts, in some ways, very much like a psychedelic. Because if the purpose of a psychedelic trip is to get you back to your foundation, thinking you're going to die like a dog in the ditch is also wonderful for doing that. Uh, but, uh, see, I think different cultures have made use of whatever was available to them. And uh, we, as a global culture, can look over the entire set of options and say, well, here's a, here's a plant which makes you see visions but also sterilizes you for five years and here's something else which does something else and we can actually choose the best of these tools. This is the great leg up that we have on the aboriginal cultures. We are, as it were, a kind of clearinghouse for all of that information and out of all of those many, many options it turns out there are easy ways in. Not, not, totally easy, but e easier ways in. And so you have to learn which are the easy ways in, the paths which can be followed at all. Yeah, Jesse. Um, I have, uh, you had said something to me over lunch about ayahuasca and vomiting, and it made the idea of vomiting more tolerable. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I don't know what it was, but... I have a lot of resistance to ayahuasca because as a child I vomited every day when my mother forced orange juice down me. <laughs> so. Well, I think what I said was it gets easier as you take, like the second ayahuasca trip is easier than the first generally, and what that implies is that this vomiting that you're doing is actually a shedding of toxins. And this is certainly how they view it. They call it la purga, the purge, and they, they culturally value and encourage vomiting. Um, the, another interesting thing about ayahuasca is that there's nothing in it that doesn't occur in the ordinary human brain. There's just more of ordinary brain chemistry there. So that implies that these extraordinary states of mind, group-mindedness, three-dimensional hallucinations and so forth, are nevertheless not that far removed from ordinary states of brain chemistry. And, you know, in an enlightened environment of medical research, these things would be studied. As it is, it's all very messed up by politics. About the tradition, um, I know that in these cultures they have mythologies and they have a tradition. Uh -huh. So if you transform or transfer um, these things to, for example, the States or Western Europe, um, there isn't any mythology, a common mythology. No, well, you can never escape your own identity. I mean, you can never experience what they experience. Conversely, they can never experience what you experience. I mean, I've been up against this, where you're sitting around in a, in a hut on your haunches, covered with pig grease and waiting for something to come on. And inevitably, you know, my mind would drift to Husserl's uh, general phenomenology of ideas. 
and I would try to perform the eidetic reduction, and then it would just make me burst out laughing. The idea that, you know, I wonder how many people in the room are performing the eidetic reduction at this moment. Not many. So I, I, you know, people have criticized me because I don't ally myself with anthropology. I'm really interested in these things as tools for understanding experience. Uh, the cultures that have discovered them often have very narrow interpretations of them. Another thing is uh, some cultures are afraid of the unconscious and encourage going only a very short distance in, you know. And I think once you get the idea that it can't really kill you, and, you know, some, sometimes you, it's hard to talk yourself into this, but if you can convince yourself of that, then, you know, just the thrill of it. And in a way, that's possible because we are deprogrammed from ideology. Anyone else except a D, anyone else except a secular late 20th century person would take a look at this and assume it was God Almighty and behave appropriately. We look at it and say, well, it can't be God Almighty, it must be something else, and then, you know, explore it in an experiential fashion. Yeah. Um, so you talk about ayahuasca as. Um, almost like a joyride on some level, like it's a... One of the questions, a question I have is, what are the, when you take ayahuasca and psilocybin and acid, those three things, what does each one specifically, if you can take in a nutshell, what, what direction each one goes, what could you say if you made a sentence for each one of those, to understand the difference? Well, a sentence, <laughs> aha, <laughs> a, a boundary I may not be able to tolerate. <laughs> Um, well, just roughly, the feeling with ayahuasca is that it's Gaian, it's earth-oriented. You feel the river, you feel the jungle, you feel the drama and pain and nobility of life and death and it's visceral, you know, it's about the meat and, and, and the jungle and... Uh, it's feminine. And then the, the character of the hallucinations is uh, it's as though it's like a camera eye. It's largely silent, but it's just an eye that is moving through a vast matrix of visual information. And after a good ayahuasca trip, you just feel like you want to rub your eyes. You say, My, you know, I've just been looking and looking. It's like a trip to Madison Avenue with money in your pocket. You've just been looking and looking and looking and looking for hours at this stuff. And um, it's, in, it's almost invariably beautiful in a, in a, a jeweled, filigreed, multi-leveled, transparent, glittering, flowing kind of way. And it almost always takes place against a black background for some reason. These things, it goes on against a black background. Okay, then psilocybin, which is just an atom's twist away, is a very different creature. The most astonishing thing about psilocybin, 
and you're hearing this from, you know, a materialist of some sort, is that it speaks. It, it has a voice. And if you don't think this is confounding to the rational mind to come upon this in the detritus of your mind's attic, it can talk to you and, and astound you with its insight, humor, uh, ability to connect and make uh, insightful inclusions and so forth and so on. And the whole thing, the whole psilocybin experience is imbued with this eerie energy which has different names, but elfin, gnomic, extraterrestrial... Um, you know, they're, they're shiny-eyed and small and there's chattering. And the other thing is there are machines. The, the psilocybin visions have a tendency to drift toward technoscapes, enormous machines in orbit around alien planets and strange architectonic forms where you don't know whether you're wandering around inside somebody's cathedral or their television set. And... Uh, and the whole thing has this off-world, we are the Galactarian civilization, we hold the key to the history of this sector of the Kiliochasm, we, we, you know, it's this kind of thing, almost blast of trumpets and, uh, and the ringing up of cosmic curtains. It's very, very dramatic, Wagnerian and... Uh, forward-looking. It's about the destiny of the race and why planets are put in place and what it's all for. Could hardly be different from ayahuasca. And yet, you know, an atom's twist away. Um, then DMT, you know, rests in some even weirder domain of triangulation. DMT, you don't only hear the voice, but if you get a sufficiently uh, heroic dose, it's like you break through into the control room where all the secrets are being run from and built, and uh, there's this unbelievable sense of finding out, finding out beyond your wildest dreams of ever finding out. And it's an inhabited mind space of some sort that is so unexpected and so convincingly real that you actually, I think, a, a person who doesn't fear for their sanity has already lost it at that point. Because it is without a doubt, you know, the absolutely the last thing you ever expected to have happen to you, that you would burst into some, some place somewhere where there would be these chattering, self-transforming linguistic creatures that are made out of light and punning intentionality and are, are trying to get you to perform some unimaginable task that is somehow caught up with the unravelment of the space-time continuum and the destiny of the species and so forth and so on. And, you know, this is at 30 seconds into a trip that lasts a minute and a half, and then you're returned to, you know, you and your friends and your concerns. Um, LSD is not animated. 
in this way. It, it is more like uh, the classical expectation people have, I think, who have not taken these things of what a psychedelic drug should be. In other words, you think clearer, you see connections, you can hold very complex ideas in your mind and rotate them and look at them from many angles. You experience emotional abreactions, you recover childhood memories, you are able to straighten your karma out with people, you are undergoing rapid psychological uh, growth. Uh, under the influence of LSD, but it, it doesn't... T- the, uh, the reason I am not so keen on LSD is that I'm really a plant guy, not a drug guy. And it, it's something about these substances that have been carried along in the genomes of these plants for, in some cases, hundreds of millions of years. And why? You know, what are these things doing for the plants, and then what, how can a molecule so simple, this is another puzzle in all of this, these molecules are planar, that means they're flat, they're simple, sometimes 20, 30 atoms, and yet uh, they totally transform your entire consciousness. This is the equivalent of a red ant who can rip down the Empire State Building in an hour and a half. I mean, why is mind so delicately poised that such a tiny amount of pharmaceutical material can create such vast changes? And then another puzzle, as long as I'm listing my favorite mysteries, and this is the one that really got me into this in the beginning, because my early inclination was toward art history, and that is a very simple question. Where do the images come from? Where does this stuff come from? I mean, it is so unreferent to the ocean of commercially produced imagery in which we swim. You know, we are constantly bombarded by the images of television and Hollywood and so forth and so on. And yet, the psychedelic species of visual beauty is not, we don't see it in our furniture styles and our architecture. It seems to be coming in literally from another dimension. And yet it is undeniably moving. It's beautiful. And I I am puzzled why I, as an ordinary person, under the influence of, let us say, 30 milligrams of psilocybin, can see more art in an hour than Western civilization has produced in the past thousand years. And that tells you how little of we're getting from the art river back to the village where we can drink it. Niagara's of beauty are flowing by untapped by ordinary consciousness. And, you know, uh, would that we could send robots who could film these psychedelic realities. Perhaps, you know, virtual reality will develop into a technology where we are able finally to reconstruct and agree upon the content 
of the psychedelic experience. But to me, that's almost like the metaphysical stamp of approval on the psychedelic experience. Beauty is an, the, the presence of so much beauty is an argument to me that truth cannot be far away. Yeah. Are you aware of any spontaneous trips uh, <clears throat> without um, the plants? Well, you know, there's a whole vast area of human endeavor called mystical religion, and there's a whole other vast area of human endeavor called madness. <laughs> and uh, uh, many stories abound and come out of these areas. Um, I, I think that what we're talking about here, whether we're talking about madness, mysticism, or psychedelics, is a brain state. For the schizophrenic, it is uninvited and terrifying. For the mystic, it's achieved by excruciating acts of asceticism in most cases, which certainly have profound physiological consequences on uh, the neural ecology of the brain. And for the smart money, I think, you use a shamanic technology. I think religion, organized religion of the high classical sort, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, and so forth, is very anxious about this whole issue, precisely because religion is always anxious about the issue of direct revelation. That was what shattered religious consensus in Europe. That's what the Protestant Reformation was about, doctrinally. I mean, there were many things going on. But the doctrinal argument was, is it the job of specialists called theologians to study scripture called revelation in order to tell the rest of us what God's plan is? Or is it better for each of us to look within the confines of our own souls and have our own dialogue with God and figure it out. And that was basically the Protestant position, and it went against hierarchical uh, theology. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I recently read about some, a mushroom called fly agarant, and can you comment on its uh, role in uh, history? Oh, these are amazingly complicated questions, or either that or I've over-educated myself. <laughs> <laughs> Could be, huh? <laughs> well, uh, there is a, a whole domain of, of controversy and discourse about the role of mushrooms in, in human culture because it, it was noticed by Gordon Wasson in the 1950s that there are two kinds, invariably, there are two kinds of cultural attitudes toward mushrooms. Uh, one is called mycophilic. And if you want to know what mycophilism is, go to Russia, go to Poland, go to Czechoslovakia, where people have hundreds of words for mushrooms. Several holidays a year are set aside to collect mushrooms. Uh, children are named after mushrooms, so forth and so on. The Slavs are into mushrooms. Well, then if you want to know what a mycophobic culture is, uh, go to rural England, where there are no mushrooms. There are only toadstools, and don't touch them, please. They're highly poisonous. 
that's the, the general English uh, and uh, attitude toward mushrooms. So Gordon Wasson wrote about this all through the 50s and 60s, and he decided that y- you all probably have seen, if not the real thing, uh, a plastic cast or depicted in schmaltzig uh, uh, European illustrative style, the famous mushroom of fairy tales, the red mushroom with the white dots. Well, that is Amanita muscaria, and it grows in a symbiotic mycorrhizal relationship to spruce and birch trees, and is used by the shaman of the Irkut language group and the Amur River Basin. And now it just happens that those people in the Amur River Basin were the first people studied by the new science of anthropology when it wanted to study shamanism. By chance, this was. And so ever since, the science of shamanism, whether we're talking about the shamans of the Amazon Basin, Central China, South India, or Tierra del Fuego, has had to labor within the categories created by the people who studied the shamanism of the Amur River Basin. And the use of the Amanita muscaria was tremendously overstressed by Wasson, I think. He wrote a book called Soma, the Divine Mushroom of Immortality, in which he argued that Amanita muscaria was the Soma of the Rig Vedas. You may not know it, but the Rig Vedas are largely these hymns composed in the, in the Vedic phase of the Hindu religion to a mysterious intoxicant, Soma. Nobody knows what Soma is, but much scholarly ink and blood has been shed on the question. And Gordon Wasson argued that it had to be Amanita muscaria and made a case which impressed some people and not others. The most damaging evidence against him was it's hard as hell to get off on this stuff. And when you finally do get off, the experience is extremely ambiguous. I mean, shivering and salivating and thinking you're losing your marbles is not my idea of the ecstatic ascent to the presence of the pleroma. And a lot of other people thought so, too. So then there, there were, was lots of hassle about, well, then it, it did seem that Wasson had secured the case that the Vedic hymns were about a mushroom. That was his breakthrough. But his mistake was he, he got the mushroom wrong and then created an entire false cultural history based on this error. And, you know, this, uh, I'm not interested in flaying you with my theory, but if you're interested, it's told in the book Food of the Gods. Because, as I mentioned this morning, I think psilocybin was the catalyst that triggered the emergence of, of self-reflecting consciousness in human beings. And so my mushroom story is not a story of a subarctic, toxic mushroom cult that carried itself into India along with the Indo-European invasions. My story is an older story about a mushroom that contained psilocybin and flourished in the grasslands of Africa and was present as nomadism slowly evolved into the domestication of cattle 
and as we talked about this morning, the suppression of gender dominance with the addition of psilocybin in the diet created a partnership society that existed up until the invention of agriculture and climatological change uh, made the mushroom difficult to obtain. And at that very critical juncture, after perhaps 50,000 years of mushroom-induced suppression of, of hierarchical dominance patterns, the, the withdrawal of the mushroom from the human diet allowed the old pattern to reassert itself. But at this point, you know, we had language, we had agriculture, and what did we do? We quickly organized monotheistic religions, city-states, warrior castes, god-kingship, uh, the world of the lash and, uh, and uh, the god-king basically, and we, have, we are the unhappy inheritors of that circumstance uh, to the present day. And, and that's why our situation is so bizarre and why we are so neurotic, if you will. It's because human consciousness evolved in an entirely different cultural milieu than we now exist in. It, it evolved in a world in which the Gaian logos was absolutely real to every man, woman, and child in the society. And uh, I believe that the tendency in the hominoids to form monogamous pair bonding was eroded by the presence of psilocybin because it promoted an orgiastic sexual style. And the social consequences of that were that men could not trace lines of male paternity. And so you have an, in, an intense impetus toward collective bonding in a group like that because the children are our children, the children of the group. Uh, the nuclear family is, I think, a, a somewhat maladaptive fragmentation from all of this. And this is important for us to understand because we have practiced a neurotic style of culture for a long, long time. It has permitted the conquest of matter, but that now is done. I mean, once, you know, hydrogen fusion, you can put it in a bottle at Yale, well, then you've been there, done that. And now we have to swing the thing back into balance. The tools that we acquired on the journey of the prodigal son through the world of matter, can, you cannot redeem the moral cost of that in yet, unless those tools are brought to bear to now redeem the planet. I mean, if there is any justification for history at all, it must be that it secured a longer evolutionary life for intelligence uh, on the planet. And, uh, you know, as far as how the psychedelics fit into this in the individual scheme, uh, psychedelics are not flashlights into the chaos of the Freudian unconscious. They are tools for mathematically unpacking your mind into a higher dimensional space. In the Newtonian 
and print-created social space that we're walking around it, you are like a self-extracting archive that hasn't self-extracted itself yet. Uh, and then you take psilocybin and you self-extract and unfold. Uh, and because think about it, I mean, I'm very serious about this. Uh, think about what the shaman's functions are in the classical Paleolithic model. The shaman's functions are to predict weather, to uh, anticipate the movement of game and enemies, and to heal disease. Well, now, how, how could you do those three things? Well, the answer is, if you could see into next week, that would be helpful. That would allow you to do all three of those things. Predict the weather, see the movement of game and enemies, and make very astute choices about who you accepted as your patients. Uh-huh, you see? <clears throat> And, and, and so what we see here is that there's a kind of selection going on for an ability to triangulate complex systems into the future. And I think that now the reason the psychedelic experience is so compelling to me is because I, I always, I've, I took psychedelics for years with the question, what is it? And then I never could understand what it was. And some people said, this is the wrong question, and on and on. But finally I realized, I see what it is. It's everything. It's, uh, you know, that piece of doggerel, I saw eternity the other night, an endless golden ring. Well, that's it. You simply, you just rise out of the Newtonian spatial plane, and you look back, and there is eternity hanging in space like a galaxy. And that's what the psychedelic experience is a sectioning of. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, uh, did you notice the little synchronicity where someone in Terence's audience mentioned a book by Douglas Rushkoff? Although uh, he mispronounced Rushkoff's name, Terence uh, responded that Doug was a good friend of his. And uh, since then, I've noticed that Doug has written over a dozen more books, the most recent of which, Present Shock, I covered in some detail a few weeks back in my podcast number 345, which uh, also happened to be a Terence McKenna lecture. Now, that may not be much of a synchronicity for you, but... It could also maybe be a little nudge to let you know that maybe Doug's new book, Present Shock, is one that you should read. In my opinion, it will most definitely ease some of the stress that living in this age of unlimited information and instant communication is causing. I know that it helped me get a better handle on things. Now, uh, let me guess, when Terrence was going on about the U.S. becoming a police state, weren't you just saying to yourself, well, if he thought he was living in a police state back in 1994, I wonder what he would think about today's reality. <laughs> Which, uh, of course, makes 1994 look more like the fictional 1984, but uh, that should be a topic for another day, I think. Now, I realize that it's probably beginning to get a little tedious for me to keep reminding you about how long ago these recordings were made. This particular conversation, as I said, was held near the end of 1994. So uh, let's revisit that year right now and uh, take a look at the level of their tech. 
Well, not even two years had passed by then uh, since the web arrived on the scene, and uh, this was 12 years before the introduction of the first iPhone. And yet here is Terrence saying things like, what the electronic culture empowers is diversity, eccentricity, and a pluralistic kind of mix. Now, I think that statement alone shows how incredibly far ahead of his own time he was. Sure, it's uh, easy to say things like that today, with half of the humans on the planet walking around and looking down at the little electronic device in the palm of their hands, but back when a 300-baud dial-up modem was the bleeding-edge state-of-the-art, well, you uh, really had to have a feeling for the future to be as sure as Terence was about what was about to be unleashed on us in the form of a highly digital world. And another point that I don't want to belabor because, well, I've already done so on several other occasions, but while I agree in a general sense with Terence's description of differences between the experiences on different psychedelic substances, I just want you to know that while I have had visions, uh, sometimes wild visions, on all of the substances that he mentioned, none of them could be described in the way that Terence does. And I've had this same conversation with quite a few other psychonauts, and almost without exception they have also admitted that their visions were also very unlike Terence's. So I don't want you to be disappointed should you ever have one of these experiences and uh, they don't live up to your expectations, at least in a visual sense. So, uh, did you also enjoy the excitement with which Terence spoke about the potential of the Internet? And while nobody back then would have predicted how deeply the net has penetrated the life of our species in such a short time, you do have to admit that Terence could already sense what was coming our way. You know, during the uh, 80s and 90s, I was uh, deeply involved, uh, along with many thousands of others, in the development of the first personal computers and then the Internet. And I can still remember our wildest dream back then. And that was for the Internet to become so pervasive that, like electricity in the telephone, well, people just took it for granted and no longer really gave any thought to what was actually taking place when they uh, clicked a link on that little machine that they're holding in the palm of their hand. But I think that the biggest revolution that has taken place since the net came alive is in the amount of information that is now available to so many people, and instantly. Twenty years ago, if I wanted to find out what varieties of psilocybin mushrooms grew in Africa, I would have had to travel to uh, one of the large, specialized libraries at some university. But just now, with a search of only a few seconds, I found shroomery.org, where they provide a listing, by country, of African varieties of psilocybin mushrooms. As I've mentioned before, uh, when I first became involved in the psychedelic community, I could find nothing in the best libraries and bookstores in Dallas, Texas, where I was living at the time. Outside of Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception, the main library didn't have a single thing about psychedelics. Now, here it is, just a few short years later, and I find you and me enjoying ourselves here in cyberdelic space in the Psychedelic Salon. What a long, strange trip it's been. However, it's now time for me to continue my trip and surf over to another part of our world. So, for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>